0: We have one passage today, one slide, Cale uh, and Lexi, that we're going to keep up the whole time. Um, actually, one passage, and we'll, we'll, um, that, will be, that will be, this will be the passage. It's going to be the second slide we'll put up for most of the time, okay? These are the very words of God. Beloved, or, or dearly loved, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This is John's first letter to the church after he wrote his gospel. And as we will probably see, Lord willing, next week, this passage is massively impacted by John's own personal experience with Jesus Christ especially on the night of the Last Supper, which is appropriate for us as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. John had a big reason for writing his first letter, like most of the apostles. He was trying to establish the truth of the faith, and he's doing a lot of countering of false teaching in this letter. So there's various ideas and attacks against the truth of this baby gospel that slowly but surely taking over the world. And he's countering the heresies and the false teachings that are attacking it. Someone is telling the church that there's a level of sinless perfection that we can all achieve where we no longer battle with any evil in our hearts. And John counters that. He says, there's no such thing as sinless perfection. We all struggle with sin you cannot be truly, another, another word is that you can believe in the spirit of Jesus and live as you want, that there's a separation between spiritual truth and our daily living. And John says, no, no, don't take it that far. You cannot be truly God's child and live in continual unrepentant sin or unbelief. Another heresy is the idea that Jesus is too, lofty and high for a human body and so he came not as a human body but as an apparition a a hologram as it were that was so well designed by God that you couldn't tell that he was just a spirit and our bodies are these crude worthless containers and John says no he came as a real human And we must understand that God and man have been united in one person, in the Lord Jesus. And then there's another massive theme taken up, which we see in our passage today. And that is this command and truth. The command is love one another. But the truth is that those who really have the Holy Spirit in them will love one another. They will love their brothers and sisters. Not perfectly but truly, not only in what they say, but in how they give, how they care, how they shed abroad their time and their treasure for their brothers and sisters. And we see some of that in our passage, right? You see it strewn throughout this. Beloved, let us love one another. Anyone who does not love does not know God. If God so loved us, we ought to love one another. If we love one another, God's love is perfected in us. It's fulfilled in us. It's accomplished in us. And, and as we move into our section in our foundation series, the series we're on right now and the basics of our faith and our life together, as we move from what does it mean to be a disciple belonging to God, me and God, me and God, as we move to we and God, us and God, the church and God, I'm hoping we're going to see through passages just like this, the beauty and the weight, the beauty and the weight of God's call on us to love one another. Amanda made such a good point that just like our devotional life, our, our attempts to love one another, it often is like a big door that's stuck on the outside. It's hard to press into at the, at the, in the initiating stages. But as we push in and press in, we start to experience what Jesus said when he said, if you lay down your life, you're gonna find your life. If you give, you're gonna receive. If you die to yourself, you're gonna find what true life is. That's true at the front door of so many quiet times we have, right? We don't wanna do it, we don't wanna do it. And then we find ourselves, as Dia Carson reminded us last week, at some point, God starts to blow into those sails. It's just like that with our love for one another. And so it's not enough for John just to say, hey, Christians will love one another. It will happen. It's great. The Spirit fills us and we will just love one another. That's true. But in order to make that happen, he has to say, hey, love one another. (laughs) Love one another. It's not an easy thing for us to do. And so... This is a great passage and a great communion passage for this whole question that we're going to move into soon, which is how do we love each other? Why are we at church? What are we here for together as discipling, as those who are seeking to, to disciple one another? But, but, but before we see that beautiful and, and weighty call to love one another, John wants to remind us this morning where that love is sourced where that love is sourced. He wants to show us where the greatest glory of love blazes because as beautiful as our love for one another can be and often is, it does not find its source in itself. Like the moon receives its light from the sun and can be beautiful and glorious. The moon's light does not come from the moon. And so our love for one another does not come, ultimately, from one another. So right in the heart of this passage, buried at the core, John asks us to consider the source of our love for one another and the fuel of our love for one another. And here's what he says in this simple verse 10. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, John has told us a few verses earlier that God is love, It's one of the most famous phrases in all of Scripture. It's one of the most beautiful, glorious truths in all of Scripture. And our hearts rejoice and resonate with that idea, God is love. And let me tell you, I think massively our hearts should rejoice and resonate with that idea. And and I think so much of the world, when they hear that, there's, there's that empty space that Augustine talks about. Remember that phrase of Augustine's? You might remember it. that Augustine said, That in our hearts is a God-shaped hole. And only God can fulfill that hole. Another phrase of his was, our hearts are restless, Lord, until they find their rest in you. And so I think even when the world, even when atheists hear that idea, God is love, isn't it probable that so many of them are, oh, they're wooed for that. They're, They're just, oh, I wish that was true. I want that to be true. Oh, I feel that that must be true. And we feel that. God is love is such a beautiful truth and it is true. But it's a phrase in John's theology here that it needs to mean something. It needs to really be parsed out. It's not to be transmuted into something akin to, oh, God is only gentle. God will accept you and affirm you and give you peace and life, no matter what you do or what you think about him. That's not what John is talking about. Or even for those of us who might say, no, we, we have a proper view of what to say when we mean God is love. I really feel like for me, the, the reality is that, that it's like, this, what I really see with my eyes and why we spent so much time this morning praying through these songs as we prayed through these songs is because it's the smallest tip that I'm able to see with my spiritual eyes. It's, it's like a glacier-sized... What's that thing that the Titanic ran into? An iceberg. <laughs> like I really forgot what that word was. It's in my notes even. But, but that's, that's what I feel like I get out of, out of this idea that God is love. It's like I see the tiniest tip and the word of God tells me that it's this glacier-sized iceberg. And the tip of it is is so small that my real understanding of God's love is just really diminished by my poor apprehension. My real experience and the response that God's love is supposed to have in me is just terribly handicapped by my spiritual blindness. And so we're left feeling nice for a moment when we hear God is love, but essentially functionally unchanged. And so John is trying to help us get under the water, as it were, and really see this love for what it is. So he's given us these simple words to meditate on and to think about this morning. And I want to take them one by one and try to taste them phrase by phrase and taste them with you that God might help us see what this means afresh and be changed by it. First, John says, this is love. He's going to explain what it is. I've told you God is love. Now let me explain what I mean. So here it is. Remember when I said God is love a few verses ago? I'm going to tell you exactly what I mean right now. So listen, here it is. It's not that we loved God. It's not that we loved God. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm not talking about this idea that you loved God. No, God's love, John tells us, is defined by its self-existence. Its self-existence. It did not come from us. It is not a response to us. In fact, John means more when he says, not that we love God. He doesn't just mean we were neutral. What he means is that it comes to us despite us. And this is part of the glory of God's love. It comes to us despite us, in contradiction of us. None of us want God naturally. None of us want God Naturally, no one of you is born wanting God the way that God is meant to be wanted. Anyone who has raised a child doesn't have to read theology or books on human anthropology to understand this. We don't naturally want God. Now, it's natural and easy for us to love people when they love us, to want to be kind to people who are kind to us, to want things to go well for people who want things to go well with us. But John says, that is not at all what I am talking about when I tell you about God's love. Romans 4 says that while we were still his enemy while we were still in rebellion against us, against him, God loved us. We know from many years of sitting in church, we know from our recent exploration in Romans 1 that all of us have inherited and all of us repeat in our own lives, apart from God's grace, this universal rejection of God that the one to whom all is owed every single moment of our existence, the one who is the title of the poem of our breathing, every inhale and exhale testifies to our absolute dependence on something outside of us. The one who holds every molecule, every pulse, every blood vessel together every moment that he received at the beginning of creating his image bearers, their rejection. His love was traded in. Traded in for the lie that we could be independent, that we could enjoy, in fact, the high place that Satan invited us into of being God's judge. He's not really good, Satan said to Adam and Eve. And that released us. From being bound to his Godhead and convincing ourselves through that that we could make our own way and choose our own course because he's keeping us from what is good. We believe that lie in the garden, and every descendant of our spiritual mother and father has inherited and perpetuated this resistance and this hardness, this desire to be their own God, to live for themselves instead of the one who gave himself for them. Whether we say it or not, in every movement in our own way, away from God, we implicitly judge him as being unworthy of following, and as one who doesn't know as well as we know what is good. And the devastating reality of all that is human history. Broken homes, broken children, broken societies. None of us wants God naturally. None of us sees him as beautiful and worth our greatest infections, affections. Instead, we naturally want him just like our children (laughs) would naturally enjoy it if we could just leave them alone so they can run their life So we say to God in our lives, I will take this life you've given me and live it my own way. I'm talking about humanity as a whole. And humanity says to God, I'll take the creation you made that you sustain every millisecond. And I'll find my hope in it. And so this is our heritage. Greed for more and more when others around us are in need. Craving what people think, not to bless them, but to find our security and self-glory. Putting our hope in the created world of money, of human strength and gifting, instead of our only source for all things. Selfishness and wars between nations and wars in our home. parents who hurt their children, children who dishonor their parents, socially various forms of oppression by the powerful over the weak, again and again and again. And God says, I still love you. I still want you. You don't want me. I want you. We should be those who pursue God. We should be those who initiate and run after him, but we aren't. And this idea that the God who is worth all of our affection and our greatest thanksgiving is rejected by us, but instead of hardening himself against us, he pursues us, is what John wants us to understand when he says, This is love, not that we loved God. A couple of weeks ago, I got pretty sick with strep. I had to take antibiotics. Not a big deal. I've been through it many times. You guys have all been through it. But what was sad was I I basically was bedridden for many, many days. And I'm a terrible sick. Like the, the man cave motif or whatever, the man sick, whatever, what's the name for that? Yeah, man cold. I am like prototype man cold. Um, I just, and what's discouraging to me about the man cold is, is, well, there's a bunch of things, but like, I just, I'll be frank with you guys, and I'm not giving you permission, like, this isn't a good thing, so it's, it's, it, it is, I'm serious, like, this is the kind of thing that Um, I don't want you guys to emulate in me. But I just wanted, in my man-cold life, I just wanted my Buffalo Bills, my Roger Federer, my JFK assassination books, and everybody leave me alone. I didn't want the Lord. I didn't want to be with him. I I like him, you know, my mind, but I just, I was increasingly, as the days went on and I got sicker and sicker, my comfort was this world. And I'm sad about that. But that's the reality in my heart, apart from his grace. I don't have an appetite naturally for God. My tongue, my taste buzz, don't naturally in myself taste God and say, oh, how good he is. I don't, I love, apart from God's grace, I love this world. My heart is captured by stupid things. I'm serious, my greatest emotional affection and desire in those days was captured by stupid things, not necessarily evil things. It's fun, football is fun. These guys on these shows, they scream louder than the loudest gospel preachers you've heard. Stephen A. Smith, you know who he is? If you don't know, don't bother. But he just screams as if life and death depended on whether Josh Allen could beat Patrick Mahomes. He screams and they scream against him and they get upset with each other. And it's all out of perspective. It's not a fun gift of athletics. It is fanaticism, and my heart reverberated with all that. And I cared more in those moments about whether the Bills and the Chiefs, you know, who's gonna win, than anybody in Iran in prison, locked in a jail cell for Jesus Christ. I didn't, I mean, intellectually I knew I should care, but in my heart I didn't care. Get me the clip of the Bills destroying the Steelers. I don't want to look at Voice of the Martyrs and pray for these people in China. Get me my stupid clip or help me know whether Henry Cavill is going to be in Superman again in Black Adam. Like, that's what I'm excited about. And I could blame Strep. I could blame Strep. But it's not Strep's fault. All Strep is doing is is giving me an excuse and and... I don't have the fleshly, the the human strength, vigor I need to pursue God in those moments, and I just get weak. So I'm embarrassed and I'm ashamed. But you know what? That's the reality of my heart apart from the Holy Spirit. I care about stupid, worthless things instead of caring about things that really matter. And, And that's not just funny to God. It's gross to him. It's detestable. And, it's, and in, in my fanaticism over these stupid things, I think, and in my trading the, the people in prison in Iraq for Josh Allen, I think it crosses a line to him from enjoying the creation to in a kind of idolatrous worldliness that grieves him. And were I not his son, that would be a testimony against my soul being worthy of eternal life. So then God gave me health And I saw this was too much, this is too much. And God's helped me to get out of the man cave of my sickness. But here's the thing, the whole time that that was going on, the whole time I was finding God completely uninteresting, at least functionally unwilling to go after him. Do you know what he was doing the whole time? The whole time he was praying for me. The whole time the son of God was interceding at the father's throne for me, never stopping. The whole time, I had no interest in really functionally pursuing him. At least not enough interests to put away the the football stuff. He was praying for me in the Trinity. He was wanting me. He was desiring me. He was loving me. He was pursuing me. That's who he is. We don't love him, but he loves us. God pursues people who don't want him. They hold back, they reject him, and he pursues them. This is very humble for the one to whom all glory is due. This is what Jesus was on his days on earth. He knows Jerusalem is going to reject him, he doesn't wait for them to change their mind. He goes to them, he teaches them, he heals them, he does miracles again and again and again for three years. People who don't want him, who don't care about him, who only want what they can get out of him, he just keeps pursuing them. Right before the climax of the cross, he sees the city and his eyes are full of tears and he cries out to these people, who would be full of a lust for his death in just a few days. And he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how long I've wanted to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you would not have it. You don't want me, but I want you. This is God's love, John says. Not that we loved God. Tears and pleas from the very creator, who feeds us and gives us sleep and gives us our parents and our friends and our skills and our jobs. He deserves our greatest love, but he has to beg for it almost. He who should be worthy of our greatest honor gets second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth fiddle in our lives and he keeps pursuing us. This is how our Lord loved Judas. He held this man that he made in front of his face and washed this betrayer's feet. Every moment he's holding together every molecule in that man's body, he knows what Judas in his heart's intentions is going to do. But he gets down on his knees in front of that man and he takes his dirty feet and as a sign of his humble, gentle, pursuing love, he washes them giving him yet one more opportunity. This is his pursuing love. Peter is about to desert him. I'll I'll stand with you no matter what happens. And Jesus says, no, you won't, Peter. You think you love me, but when push comes to shove, your love is gonna run thin and you're gonna desert me to save your own skin. And I know this. And I've already prayed for you to ensure your return. This is love, not that Peter loved God, but that God pursued Peter anyway. As Jesus hangs on the cross, he doesn't wait for the city to see the cruelty they're doing. Even if they don't believe that he's the son of God, they're mocking him, beating him, plucking at his beard, spitting in his face, laughing at his pain. He doesn't wait for them to change their heart. He goes to his father in pursuing love and says, God, father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. The one who is lofty and high above all things is humble beneath all things. And then John says, he sent his son He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. His love, God's love, is not only pursuing, it's giving. God's love doesn't only know intentions. I want to do this. I feel like this. I long for this. I desire this. As beautiful and humbling as his intentions and his desires and his feelings for his people is, it moves from desire and feeling into actual giving and doing and sacrificing. And this is love beyond all comprehension. He says that, John says that God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Let's remember again what that word propitiation means. It's a strange sounding word to us, but it's meant to bring great honor to God. Because really at the heart of this word propitiation is the concept of justice. This informs what John means when he says God is love because his love is a just love which makes it even more glorious. This word propitiation refers to the idea of a moral payment that must be made to a moral God. The universe is moral because God is moral. And when great evil is done, all of us know instinctively, if we consider it great evil, We all instinctively believe that justice is wounded. And so if someone, for instance, were to harm your child severely or exploit and take advantage of your elderly parents or abuse a dear friend, and some of us have experienced those things and seen those things, and if a judge who was called to uphold justice knew this was true, that your child had been severely harmed or your parents had been, Exploited by greedy people, or your friend had been violently abused. If a judge knew this and saw this but let the guilty go scot free, you would feel that wound against justice personally. It's not because you're vindictive necessarily, it's not. It's it's because your God given sense of fairness was offended. This is hard for us to understand when we think about God being loving, but we've got to. There's this thing, this zeal in God to protect love. He isn't just loving. He must protect love, love's honor. So when God says that what is just in the world is to love me, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He's equating what is loving with what is only just. When God says that you are obligated to not only love him with all your mind, your heart, your strength, but you're obligated to love your neighbor, your brother, your sister, as yourself, he's not just saying, isn't it a beautiful idea to love your neighbor as yourself? To love your husband or your wife or your siblings or your co worker as yourself. He's saying, actually, this is what is just. This is justice. And when that justice is defrauded, there's an instinct in God that is just, that says, I will protect love, I will repay. Love will not be dishonored in my universe. And this word atonement, or propitiation, it is this idea that for justice wound to be healed, for justice to be satisfied, someone has to pay. And the Old Testament God designed, you're all familiar with this, if your church, your Bible teach to people an entire system of animal sacrifices to get it into the head of his people again and again and again, that justice for sin must be satisfied if a sinner can have any hope for escape. These are the rules, the DNA embedded in our universe because they're embedded in the heart of God. Now, realize that justice is offended at every hateful thought of ours, every hurtful word that comes out of your mouth, every gossiping sneer, every act, bit, thought, word of favoritism over those who you decide aren't worthy of your attention or care or friendship because you're somehow excluding them, every sexually immoral craving, every selfish holding back, to those who need your help, every lazy, overeating, oversaturated entertainment gorging, every self-exalting deed, a virtue done for the applause of people, justice is offended and cries out at all of this. And when God's justice in his universe cried out, his response was to send his son to be the propitiation for that sin. What more could be said of God than this? That he loved his enemies who rejected him and that he paid the penalty for the sins against him for them. I am just going to read something. I'd like to read to you what Charles Spurgeon said about this passage because I can't improve on it. He says, language fails me. I have no words by which to set forth the excellence of this love. It is love divine, love beyond degree. God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It was necessary that this only begotten Son of the Father should suffer in the flesh, that he should be delivered up into the hands of sinners, cruelly ill-treated, spit upon, nailed to a tree, and put to death. This is what we did to God when he visited us. And he used that treatment To forgive us. To pay justice back so that we could be released from the debt we owed him. And Spurgeon goes on, who among us would give up his son? Dear, unspeakably dear to us are the children of our loins. We might give them up for our country in the day of battle. Many a widowed mother has known when she has read the list of the killed in battle and seen that her brave boy has fallen. She has known the blood-stained drapery of war and she has little glory in her eyes for it henceforth. But who among us would think of giving up his son to die for his enemy? Brothers and sisters, this is love that God would give up his son to die for his enemy, for one who never did him a service, but treated him ungratefully, repulsed a thousand overtures of tenderness and went on perversely hardening his neck. No man could do it. Then think what manner of love is that God's only begotten son should be willing to die. That the Holy One should be willing to become a man. Willing to take our sins upon him. Willing to suffer for those sins. Willing to endure the bloody sweat. Willing to bear his shoulders to the scourge of the whip. Willing to give himself body and soul to the pangs of such a death as was never known before or since. Herein is love. And he closes with this appeal. I do but ask you to let your mental vision look for a minute at the spectacle itself. He who is the Lord of glory is mocked by rough soldiers. They spit into his face. They pluck his hair. They call him king. And they bow with mimic homage before him. He is scourged, and his scourging is no child's play. He is made to carry his cross upon his shoulders through the streets of Jerusalem. He is brought to a rising knoll outside the city gates. He is thrown upon his back, and iron is driven through his hands and feet. He is lifted up. The cross is fixed into its place with a jar to dislocate his bones. He cries, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. He suffers fever through the irritation of the nerves of the hands and feet till his mouth is dried up like an oven and his tongue cleaves to his jaws. He cries, I thirst, and they give him vinegar. Meanwhile, his soul in tortures such as no man has ever felt, his spirit lashed by a hurricane of divine judgment. It is like a sea when it boils as a pot. Oh, the unknown depths of Jesus' grief. And all this for his enemies, for us who loved him not, for us who never asked it at his hands for us who refused to have it for us who when we are brought to accept the mercy do not understand it for us who even when we somewhat understand it do not feel anything like a corresponding gratitude for us who even if we feel the gratitude do not show it but go our way and forget it for us who are utterly unworthy of anything like such affection here in his love Oh, stand and wonder. I can do no more than ask that you wonder with me. Brothers and sisters, if you feel guilt right now, I have massively failed. If all you feel right now is guilt, then I think you can decide that for whatever reason, I have not been attended to by the Spirit in the way that I would hope this message would be attended to because I have no desire to make you feel guilty through this. My hope is that you would see the extravagant love of God for you and that I would see it because I need to see it and you need to see it. Next week, we're going to consider more of how we're called to respond with each other to this love that's called to fuel us and our pursuit of enduring love with each other, forgiving each other. But this morning, I just wanted to wonder with you. I just wanted to look at this and gaze and be ministered to by this love. This alien, otherworldly, barely comprehensible love that this is who God is. Because before we can give it to each other, or give it to the lost around us, we have to be touched by this. We have to experience something of it. And we have to be fueled by it. Lord, may this love be the flame of our love for you and for our families and for our church and for our neighbors who need you still.